Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's March 27th, 2022. And of course, Ukraine and Russia continue to dominate the headlines. It's forcing us to think historically, perhaps with excessive historicism. I had a piece this week about how uh, Ukraine has, has, has created a, a shadow of World War II, which might be a little exaggerated. Certainly the headlines today bring to mind history, the history of the Second World War, new phase, according to the Russians, uh, in terms of their Ukraine offensive, focusing on the Donbass. Um, Ukraine fights back. It seems to be increasingly a war of liberation. Meanwhile, we remain extremely perplexed by Vladimir Putin. It brings to mind Churchill's remarks about Stalin, about Russia being wrapped inside a mystery, inside an enigma. Um, the Russians seem to be pushing back at least uh, a resistance to Putin uh, in the FT today, a piece from Mikhail Khodorovsky about winning back the struggle for the minds of the Russian people. Again, a deeply historical issue for the last couple of hundred years. Joe Biden has been speaking in a historical sense. Uh, He's denounced the Russian invasion, casting it as part of a decades-long attempt to crush democracy. Uh, the issue of regi regime change has come up, although today Antony Blinken suggests that the U.S. is not seeking a Russian regime change. Uh, all this is, of course, deeply historical. And who better to talk then about the conflict than one of the world's leading historians, uh, Michael Ignatiev was last on this show with Anne Applebaum before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, talking about the twilight of democracy and the rise of authoritarianism. Uh, Michael had an interesting piece recently on the historical perspective of the war in Ukraine. I last met Michael in Budapest a few years ago when he was the rector of the Central University. Uh, he remains associated with the university, although he's just a professor now of history, not just a professor, is a professor of history. And he's talking to us from Vienna. Michael, welcome. Nice to see you, Andrew. Michael, you, uh, you bring a remarkable wealth of knowledge and of experience to this conversation about what we're to make of uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine in March 2022. How should we be thinking about this in a historical perspective? How can we take the long view? How can we step back and not be uh, enslaved by the minute-to-minute -minute events? It's a very good question. I would go back to uh, the starting problem, which is that you have an authoritarian Russia unwilling to countenance or accept a democratic, democratic people not just merely a democratic regime, but a people who clearly want to live in freedom. The inability of authoritarian Russia to countenance that on their, their border. And that's a very old story. It goes back into the 19th century. Just ask the Poles, whose independence was crushed by Russia throughout the 19th century and 
Polish independence was only regained at the end of the First World War. Uh, so that's the context, and that then suggests that one of the deep historical drivers of this conflict is the failure of Russia itself to democratize. And there have been two occasions in the 20th century when it had a chance to take a democratic path. And had it done so, it could have lived very happily with a democratic Ukraine on its borders. But it didn't take the democratic path. First, before the First World War, when the Tsarist regime began to reform in the wake of its defeat in the Russo-Japanese War of 1905. Uh, and those hopes of democratization were crushed or lost in the First World War and the Bolshevik Revolution, which then instituted 80 years of Soviet tyranny. And then the second opportunity for democratization was uh, after the Berlin Wall came down and uh, Yeltsin was in power. There was a period of seven or eight years when Russia fumbled its the possibility of taking a democratic path. And we ended up in 1999 with Vladimir Putin, basically the Russian state being handed over to a KGB agent. And we are where we are now, I think, as I say, because of these two chances to democratize in Russia were lost. Michael, you know Russia as well as anyone. You're the son of George Ignatiev, very distinguished Russian diplomat. Um, I'm curious, though, is there something cultural here, too? The Chinese aren't a democracy, but they haven't invaded Taiwan. Um, what is what is this fetishization of war? Uh, 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 how is this somehow bound up in the Russian psyche or the mentality or the culture? Well, I don't know that there's a cultural strain of authoritarianism. There's simply a historical tradition that Russians have been mostly governed by autocrats, czars and commissars, uh, Stalin being the most egregious, so that there is, in fact, uh, in contemporary Russian society among an older generation, a good deal of nostalgia for the, autoc the autocracy of Stalin. But that autocracy, that nostalgia, excuse me, is built on deliberate cultural amnesia about the horrors of Stalinism. Uh, Putin is the heir of that nostalgia for authoritarianism in the sense that he's publicly said that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century, forgetting that the uh, Soviet extermination of its own people um, during the purges of the 1930s approach the number of victims that were claimed by Hitler. And uh, I don't want to elide the two. They're distinct forms of awfulness, but they're pretty awful. So I don't think there's a culturally entrenched um, uh, uh, some strain in Russian culture that makes it impossible for it ever to turn democratic. I, I say that partly because Russian culture also includes passionate, uh, uh, courageous um, struggles for democratic freedom, going back to the Decembrist in the 1820s, forward through the uh, opponents of the Tsarist regime, forward right to the, nearly the present day with Andrei Sakharov and Yuri Orlov and some of those courageous human rights defenders happen to be Russian. So I don't think this is kind of fated in the 
cultural DNA of the, the Russian uh, people. I, I think what's happened has, has simply been in the battle for power uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. The one institution main standing was the FSB, the, the KGB, that is the secret service apparatus. It was the one thing that continued to function and one of its control over the entire uh, but you know as we look into the future um, given that the the Russian campaign in Ukraine is stalemated at the present time um, and amounts therefore to a defeat for Putin I think courageous Russians will begin to ask themselves have we paid too high a price a prohibitive price for authoritarianism and begin to think seriously and honestly about trying another path. It won't look like a democracy, like liberal Western democracy, but it might be a, a, a system in which power doesn't concentrate so <clears throat> single-handedly into one set of hands, because it's precisely that power in one hand that I think has led to such catastrophic results for the Russian military. Michael, as I said, you were last on the Keenon show with Anne Applebaum uh, September of last year, talking about her new book, The Twilight of Democracy. She's turned out to be quite prescient in terms of, I think, her criticism and fear of Putin. And I think she's her wing, if you like, of the rather hawkish conservative movement in America is becoming more powerful. What do you make of Putin's, um, sorry, a, a Biden's response and the American response to the Russian invasion. Uh, as I said at the beginning, Biden's been making a series of speeches in Warsaw, denouncing the invasion, thinking historically, being pretty critical and personally critical of um, of, of, of Putin. Um, the, the FT suggests that uh, Biden's, what they call his fierce rhetoric, uh, might reflect Washington losing control of its message. Has the West responded, and Biden in particular, have they responded appropriately? I think on the substance, they um, have responded appropriately. That is, NATO, I think, is united. Arms, crucially, arms are flowing into the Ukrainian uh, military, and the battle has evened out, and the Ukrainians have thanks also to training from NATO countries in years after their defeat in 2014. The, the Ukrainians have learned and they've learned thanks to a lot of engagement from Western countries. So on the substance, I think uh, NATO has responded appropriately. Then the question becomes whether this recent rhetoric about, you know, we've got a, you know, Putin can't survive. It, it becomes the language of regime change whether that, that uh, rhetoric doesn't uh, provoke Putin to double down and, and continue to escalate. There's clearly, some there's clearly some danger in the rhetoric, but you know, the, the, the really substantial issue here is, is has the West, has NATO, has the United States 
committed to defend and prevent the fall of the Zelensky regime. There is strategic ambiguity about that. And NATO is not saying that. They're saying we're helping Ukraine. We want Ukraine to succeed. But they're not actually drawing a red line and saying, listen, uh, Vladimir, uh, the Zelensky government cannot fall. Um, were it to do that, um, that would clarify things mightily. Uh, the risk, obviously, of doing so is that if the Zelensky regime then falls, is pounded to bits if Kiev is encircled and bombarded, um, then the West will have failed. So this is a very complicated problem. In other words, on the one hand, you must not, I think, uh, promote regime change in Russia because you can't do that, really. Um, secondly, you've got to assist the Ukrainians, but you don't want to create false hopes and false expectations, which will lead you to look weak if you fail. So this is the the knot in which the rhetoric is tied. Um, I think on balance, the West has done a pretty good job, but you know, Zelensky is extremely unhappy with uh, the failure of the West to provide him with more assistance, and that unhappiness will continue to grow. And if um, if Putin were to prevail, uh, a narrative will have been created that Ukraine could have won had the West not given us the tools to finish the job. So we're in a very, very complicated uh, place, um, and and. It's complicated because because I think Biden and many Western leaders, certainly I personally, although I'm not a leader, uh, feel outrage at what's been done here. It's just catastrophic to watch the suffering that uh, one man and one regime has inflicted on a, a people who want to be free and pose no threat to his regime is is one of the most barbaric things I think anybody's seen in Europe since 1945. And we've seen some pretty barbaric things in Europe since 45. So the emotion carries people sometimes, I think, farther than they want to go. But I think on balance, NATO has uh, been careful to uh, help Ukraine to win, keep Ukraine from losing, uh, my worry, as I say, is that there may come a point in which we will have to choose to tell Putin, you can't let the Zelensky government fall. And then we will approach a moment of truth in which we potentially risk uh, having to th threaten uh, nuclear action or NATO involvement in the war. And at the moment, we're not prepared to go there for reasons which I understand. Yeah, I'm surprised you even bring up the, the N-word, Michael. Uh, I introduced you as a historian, but you're as much a political philosopher, probably more of a political philosopher than a historian or a, a political philosopher with a historical bent. Um, do you think this conflict reflects a new chapter in a kind of Cold War? You've written extensively on human rights. Um, you wrote one book, Human Rights uh, as Politics and uh, Idolatry. Do we need to revise our Cold War ideology? Is there a need for a new chapter in, in terms of the political philosophy of fighting autocrats like Putin? I somehow don't feel as a historian that you ever go backwards. I, I, I somehow feel we're going forwards into a new world whose 
elements we can't quite discern. Um, I think what's different now with um, from the Cold War is that the Soviet regime in 1945 was a regime that was um, uh, the expression of, the public expression of Marxism-Leninism. There was a whole vision that um, Russia, uh, the Soviet Union combined with China, uh, also a Marxist-Leninist state, represented a systemic alternative to uh, the capitalist liberal order and so those were the basic ideological terms of the Cold War. Nothing like that is in, in present now. Um, we're in a very different situation. Uh, Putin does not have, Putin attempts to create um, a justifying ideology for the um, invasion of Ukraine, but it's a tawdry, um, in fact, disgraceful attempt to persuade and who believes him that you know he's fighting Nazism? That is, it attempts to recycle, in a disgraceful way, the the heroic legacy of Soviet resistance to Hitler in the Second World War. But it's I, I can't believe there's anybody in Russia, if they were informed about the facts on the ground in Ukraine, would 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 believe in for a second, and and. In China, uh, there's a China that is saying um, our civilization um, uh, is uh, a rising power, now the number two economy in the world, um, but it is a state capitalist economy that talks a lot of Marxist, Leninist stuff, a lot of Maoist stuff, but I don't think it takes itself seriously as a civilizational challenge to uh, Western liberal capitalism in the way that the Soviet Union of Stalin did. So in that sense, I think we're in a new world. Um, uh, do I think that this new world will involve a very strong degree of ideological defense of liberal democracy? You bet. I mean, everybody is saying around us, you know, that, uh, we used to think the West didn't stand for anything. Now we know exactly what we stand for. Well, that's true. That's true. But on the other hand, um, uh, there's a slight bit of hypocrisy, which Zelensky is brilliantly exploiting. That is, we are supporting a proxy war for democracy. And Zelensky is saying, are you in or not? And I think as, as the battle gets sharper and more difficult, um, the extent and degree to which we're actually prepared to fight for democracy is going to become a question that will pose a great deal of moral difficulty for all of us. Michael, I don't want to go back, but you had two books which had big influence on me. The first was Blood and Belonging, Journeys into the New Nationalism. Uh, which was one of the best books written, I think, in the late 20th century about the new rise of nationalism and also your wonderful biography of, of Isaiah Berlin. Are we back in an age of, I know you say we can't go back in history, but is, you know, Putin is, is, is peddling the old language of blood and belonging, isn't he? What's different from him to the Serbs at the end of the, uh, the 20th century or any of the other nationalisms that you wrote about in Northern Ireland or Quebec or Germany in Blood and Belonging? 
Yes, I think that's, I think, Andrew, that's right. The, the core of the Putin ideology is essentially Russian nationalism and a particular definition of Russian, of Russia, uh, being the Russia that runs from, you know, the Gulf of Finland to the Black Sea. Uh, and, um, and it's faced with, Russian nationalism is faced with a nationalism that turns out to be just as determined as the Russian. That is, the, the, the enormous surprise it must be to Putin is, is that Ukrainians, and that includes Russians who live in Ukraine, are determined to defend um, the Ukrainian national project. Um, and so it's two nationalisms going head to head. And it's also, in the most tragic possible way, a civil war. This is fratricidal. Those Russian uh, soldiers are getting out of their tanks and discovering that they're being shot at by Russian speakers. That is many people who have, as it were, an ethnic origin in Russia, but want to live in a free Ukraine. And this must be one hell of a shock to uh, those uh, Russian tank crews. Uh, they, they were told they were fighting Nazis. They're fighting their brothers and sisters. And, and this is one of the aspects of this story that is most properly upsetting. Um, it, is, it is bad enough to launch a war that violates every principle of international law and violates the territorial integrity of a, of a peace, peaceful state. What is worse in a way is to launch a war in which you, the only way you can launch it is to lie systemically to your own people such that <laughs> right now, probably as we're, as we're talking, some poor mother and father in rural Russia is receiving a telegram or some note from the Russian state telling him, telling them that their boy has been lost in a, in a, in a just war in Ukraine. And as soon as that family discovers that they weren't fighting Nazis, they were fighting their brothers and sisters. The reckoning, I hope, I hope the reckoning will be terrible, but I feel a deep sense of pity and sympathy for Russian families who've been so willfully and maliciously and malignantly misled by this regime. It brings to mind Orwell, of course, and the, the Ministry of Truth. What would Berlin have made of this, do you think? Oh, I think Berlin understood what this was right away, which is the, the Russia of Nicholas I, the Russia of Alexander III, the Russia of Stalin. There's a deep continuity in Putin's use of military force to suppress freedom on its, on its borders. And I think he would be, um, he'd be appalled by the things that I'm appalled by, which is the lying, the mendacity, the, and then the unspeakable cruelty um, and as somebody, uh, you know, as, as people have said, I, I, this is going to inflict terrible damage on entirely innocent Russians who don't support the war. But every time they speak their beautiful native tongue in a foreign city, people will react with suspicion and hostility and associate them with one of the most criminal episodes since the Second World War. Um, so... It's, it's, it, this is tragic. Yeah, and, and it's, Berlin... It's, hero it's heroic in the sense that the, the Zelensky government is, 
is resisting and the Ukrainians are fighting with indomitable courage. But it's also deep. It's a deeply tragic story. And I, I don't I, I feel that as we watch it, it's very important not to engage in in wishful thinking, especially about the prospects of uh, Ukraine being able to survive this. I, I think we're dealing with an absolutely murderous determination on Putin's part, uh, either to conquer the whole place or if he fails to conquer it, to so cripple it that Ukraine will will never be able to fully regain its sovereignty, its wealth, its prosperity and its democratic path. I think we can stop that, but let's let's have no illusions about how bloody awful this is. This is going to go be as it goes forward. I very much associate your thinking, of course, with Berlin. Berlin's liberalism suggested or offered perhaps a retreat in some ways from politics. Your last few books seem to reflect Berlin. Uh, your last book was on consolation, finding solace in dark times, uh, the ordinary virtues, moral order in a divided world, um, fire and ash, success and failure in politics, which is a reflection of your brief career in Canadian politics. Um, what do those books teach us about how to respond to the Ukraine? Can we still carve out a world where politics doesn't intervene, of course, for Ukrainians and Russians, they don't have the choice. But what about for us in the West? Are we back in a world, Michael, where we have to follow this 100% of the time, where we can't really have a private life separate from politics? It's an interesting question. I mean, I, I, I think that that is the liberal vision. That is that there's some things that should never be politicized. And one of the curses of the current world we live in, particularly in the United States, is a polarization of absolutely everything, um, uh, which I think debases and degrades everything it touches. Politics is a dangerous weapon, and it should be kept. It could should should be kept sheathed and apart from so much of our private life, precisely so that people who disagree about politics can can share a meal and can share a concert and can um, agree to disagree. One of the great achievements of a liberal democracy is this agree to disagree uh, stuff in which you keep politics from poisoning and doing everything. But we're in a moment at the moment, frankly, where we really have to choose what side we're on. It's pretty easy to choose the side in this case, and that is to side with uh, people fighting for their freedom. I only pray that we won't allow ourselves to be po- to poison our relations with everybody who speaks the beautiful Russian language. I don't speak it, by the way. I'm I'm a very poor example of a Russian, uh, but my, it was my father's language, and so for perhaps for personal and sentimental reasons, I I, I would think it would be awful for us to uh, lose sight of the fact that our enemy here is. Vladimir Putin, not the Russian people, not Russian culture. Your first question, you know, imply that there's some kind of authoritarian, brutal strain in Russian culture that's just incorrigible. I don't, I don't believe that, or maybe I don't want to believe that. Um, so, I, I think a liberal response to this is, on the one hand, one thousand uh, percent commitment to 
do everything we can to support Ukrainian uh, freedom. But on the other hand, a, a refusal to demonize uh, anybody, uh, the Russian, particularly the Russian people, even the Russian soldiers fighting this mis woe-begotten war, um, and 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 achieving that balance is, I think, the kind of thing a liberal democrat uh, wants. But I, but let let's be very honest with ourselves as well. The solidarity towards Ukraine is very troubling. We're doing a lot but they're doing the fighting and dying. And so there's a queasy sense of, of um, discomfort. I think we all should feel about uh, what the next step is, because I think there may, may come a moment in which we may have to commit much more to the fight than we've currently committed. Yeah, that solidarity is often reflected in flags. Uh, your, your university, the one supported by George Soros, uh, Central, Euro Central European University has a CEU stands with Ukraine on its front page. We did a show about uh, Peter Osnos's new book about George Soros, which I think you have a, an essay in yeah. uh, recently. And uh, Michael, you and I last met in Budapest uh, on the wonderful campus of the Central European University, which has now been shut down and relocated to Vienna, where, where you're currently talking to me from. You're not in Budapest, but has this compromised? Um, has this compromised uh, uh, Orban? We, we did a show last year with one of your colleagues at Central University, Dorit Jeeva, as an expert on nationalism in Hungary. To what extent is this conflict forcing somebody like Viktor Orban to choose sides, or can he continue to flirt with both sides in this war? Well, he's certainly trying to flirt with both sides. He's certainly saying, I'm a member of NATO and a member of the EU, but I'm not going to allow any transshipment of arms to Ukraine. I'm not going to um, uh, do anything uh, more active to uh, support the battle for democracy in Ukraine. He's in hock to the Russians. He's got a nuclear power plant being built by the Russians. He's got an enormous bank being established in the center of Budapest, which looks like a spy station to many people. So he's in deep with Putin. And I think he wants, um, in the name of preserving his independence as a Hungarian leader, to, to, to maintain equidistance between NATO and EU and Putin. And that's a very difficult position to be in at the moment. He's also facing an election, as you know, Andrew. And right. Yeah. The election is very, next week. There's uh, a very good. There's a very good. He's facing more serious opposition this time than any time in the previous twelve years, and the opposition is trying to make the point that uh, the election will be a referendum on this policy. Uh, the the opposition is much more pro-European, much more pro-NATO than Orbán, and trying to force the Hungarian people to choose and preferably choose a path that is more more uh, closer to the to the to the NATO side. Uh, but he's a nationalist, uh, you know. It's it's uh, and he's built a power base by simply saying to the Hungarians over and over and over, "All I care about is Hungary. I don't care about Ukraine. I don't care about." It sounds the rest. like Putin I don't care about. He doesn't I care have... about you, and and that's a very powerful message. And so we shouldn't have any illusions about how effective it is.
How significant, though, do you think the election is uh, in terms of not just for, hung- for the future of Hungary, but the future of East Central Europe as a response to Putin and Putinism? Well, I think it. I, I think it, it's potentially very important. But notice that I think uh, Orban is, at the moment at least, very much the odd man out. If you noticed who went to Kiev to see um, President Zelensky, it was the Pole, it was the Slovak, it was the Czech, and and significantly absent was Viktor Orban. So he's suddenly out of step with the rest of the Eastern European states for whom the Russian invasion of Ukraine is is an existential, um, uh, you know, to call it a wake-up call doesn't, doesn't do justice to it. Uh, he's also out of step with the Baltics for which this, for whom this moment is just, you know, potentially cataclysmic. They're right next to um, the the Russian bear, and and uh, you know, uh, Putin has denied the legitimacy of Ukraine as a state. Um, people, I think, are not noticing that he has substantial quarrels with the the nature of the Polish-Russian border. And I think if he gets going with this revisionist history, he, he will start saying that, uh, you know, the Baltic states were always part of the Russian empire. So uh, what has started in Ukraine, every Eastern European realizes could go much further. And the only thing that's preventing it is, is the Article 5 guarantee of, of the use of military force. And that is going to be, I think, is going to be tested. I. I I think he will try and see whether the Article 5 guarantee is, is serious. And it, in my view, it has to be. And so let's have no illusions. The, it, it, is, it is possible that we're into a, a nuclear confrontation. And I, I hate to say it, but I, I think you can't, you just have to face where we are. And it's painful and difficult. To put it mildly, and finally, Michael, you're very much a man of the world, uh, but you are also a Canadian, and Canadians tend to have very interesting views on America. We had um, Fiona Hill, I'm sure you know her very well, and you know her new book, on the show recently, talking about the increasing Russian way of life in America. There is this bizarre now sympathy for Putin within some members of the Republican Party, particularly uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and perhaps uh, Trump himself. What do you make of that? Is this just a, a, a peculiarity, a, a sideshow, a kind of farce? Or is there something real in the way in which there seems to be um, a, a realignment on the right wing of the Republican Party to make it sympathetic to Putin and Orban and these other nationalists? I think this is an example of the ways in which hatred makes people stupid. I mean, their their hatred of liberalism and them has driven them to the edge of the constitutional order. And these are people who deny, you know, the results of the the, um, the recent American election. And if you do that and you persist in doing that, you're at the edge. Of the Constitution is not abstract. The basis of the Constitution is you accept the results of free and fair elections and free and fair elections. So hatred of the people who won and 
phrase and and people pulled together during the cold war i think it's a sign of the intellectual decrepitude the the in, intellectual collapse of the right wing of the republican party and it's a sign that they are flirting with extra constitutional ideas of politics um, and and that's profoundly dangerous that is they're prepared to embrace violence at home and i think they're prepared to countenance violence abroad and this is absolutely not the way in which American politics worked through the Cold War. And I don't want to bring any of the Cold War back, but I did like the fact that during the Cold War, a Republican and a Democrat could disagree pretty strongly about domestic politics, but be absolutely united uh, as to the necessity to de defer and deter uh, authoritarian regimes overseas. And that appears to be in some trouble. Although I think these people are still on the margins and there is a broad stretch of American conservative opinion that is as appalled by what Putin is doing as, as any liberal or progressive. Michael Ignatiev, as always, an honor, privilege and a lot of fun talking. Uh, finally, Michael, I'm asking everyone this and you're as well situated both intellectually and in your Viennese home as anyone. Michael Ignatiev, uh, who, who, who's in charge of the world in late March 2022? Who, who, who's running the show these days? Boy. Um, the central bank regimes that are running the, the uh, global sanctions regime, I think that would be a political scientist answer. But I also think, uh, Andrew, that the people who are running the world now are the people with rifles and anti-tank weapons in some trench in Ukraine who are fighting on behalf of all of us. And they are making history, that's, that's my point. They are making the history.